Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, the Asia Chessboard welcomes new co-host Jude Blanchett, Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, to interview Mike on the strategic and political legacy of Shinzo Abe following the assassination of the former Japanese Prime Minister. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and we are starting a new chapter in this podcast. I will be co-hosting with the Freeman Chair for China Studies at CSIS, Jude Blanchett. I am uh, moving to Australia, coming back and forth to D.C., and Jude will be my co-pilot. But for this, his first episode, I'm going to let him drive. Great. Thanks, Mike. It's an honor to be co-hosting this with you. And what we thought we'd do for this episode is a slight departure from the normal format of you or moving forward, both of us interviewing an external guest. And I thought we could take advantage of your expertise on Japanese foreign policy, but more narrowly, Abe Shinzo, who tragically was killed recently and leaves a very important hole in strategic thinking about the Indo-Pacific and the appropriate response and strategic response to uh, China's rise. So in a previous episode, we already talked about your book. So I thought we would move beyond that and just start thinking about Abe's legacy, the strategic legacy, the political legacy, and where Japanese foreign policy goes in his wake. But first, let me ask a question about your personal relationship with Abe, someone you've known for a very long time and quite intimately. Can you just tell us a bit about Abe, the man, how you got to know him, and a a bit about your relationship with him? Well, I first really got to know Abe in 2001 or so when I was um, new at the National Security Council of the Bush White House, George W. Bush. And in April of 2001, Koizumi Junichiro was elected prime minister of Japan. And I was hired into the Bush White House to work specifically on Japan and Asia more broadly because strengthening our alliance with Japan was a key part of the Bush and would have been a key part of the Gore administration's approach to um, shoring up the region as Chinese power rose. In those days, you know, we were not all naive about China. We knew that this was going to be tough. And so our allies doubled in importance to us. So uh, I could have done the same job, quite frankly, in a Gore administration because there was such bipartisan consensus around the strategy. So it was essential for President Bush that he get the relationship with Kuzumi right. He invited him to Camp David in June 2001. Kuzumi brought Abe, introduced him, said, this man will be prime minister someday. And I was tasked with keeping in touch with him. I spoke Japanese. I'd worked in the Japanese diet. I kind of sort of knew him, but we ended up speaking on the phone regularly and three, four times a year meeting in person. And he is, was, um, sadly was, the grandson of Prime Minister Kishi Nobusuke, son of uh, Foreign Minister Abe uh, Shintaro from a major political family. But his family was part of the so-called anti-mainstream factions, the group that pushed for Japan to have a different foreign policy, a more assertive foreign policy. His grandfather, Kishi, revised the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in 1960 to make it stronger and more explicitly part of the Cold War. So Abe's family, his his political faction, they were always the anti-mainstream, they were called, Hishiruha, on the outside. And so he had both a very clear sense of what Japan should do strategically, which is more, a more geopolitical presence for Japan, but also, frankly, 
generations of grievance against the traditional uh, Japanese approach to post-war foreign policy, which was much more restrained, much more apologetic. He didn't like that. So people saw both sides of him on the outside, the, the clear strategic vision, but also, you know, the grievance and frustration with what he saw as too much Japanese pacifism and apology for the past. Abe leaves uh, power in 2020. I wanted to ask at a very high level, and in a minute I want to drill down a bit on foreign policy specifically, but at a very high level, how far and in what direction had Abe moved the ball over his second tenure in power? Thinking about where Japan was in 2012 versus where it was in 2020, can you talk about the delta in that time period? So social scientists always struggle with this balance between structure and agency. How much of a country's trajectory is the result of the geopolitical structure of international politics? And how much of it is agency, is individual leadership? And in the case of Abe, the direction he pulled Japan in his second term as prime minister, the longest of any Japanese prime minister, the direction he pulled Japan was not completely new. The consensus was starting to build across the factions, even the so-called mainstream factions that had traditionally been more pacifist and more passive because of structural factors, because Japan's economy hit a wall in 1990 and therefore the Japanese government could not count on economic escapes from political problems in the world. You know, I gave it the office, the usual so-called checkbook diplomacy didn't work as well uh, as it did in the 80s and the rise of Chinese power and questions about the U.S. So these big structural factors meant that the consensus was building in Japan. And I wrote a book about this in 2000. Uh, after the Cold War, Japan needed to be more proactive in shaping its strategic environment. So that structural factor was there. But Abe was the one who had always had that vision and who had the political acumen and the strategic vision to really consolidate it. And you know, when he came back to power in 2012, people were not convinced. I remember well senior officials in the Obama administration, who, who I will not name, saying that Abe was dangerous to American interests, that Abe was going to upset this delicate balancing act the administration was trying to strike with China with a, you know, new model of great power relations and a bipolar condominium. And Abe was going to upset all that. And even in public opinion polls in 2012, more Americans said in the Chicago Council on Global Affairs poll, more Americans said we should be partnering with China than, than Japan and allies in 2012. So, you know, you'll remember around 2013 and 14, the Chinese saw an opening and Chinese ambassadors around the world placed editorials attacking Abe, including in the Washington Post. And my favorite was the Telegraph in London, where the Chinese ambassador in London compared Abe to Lord Voldemort from uh, Harry Potter. There was a real opening there. But by 2019, the Chicago Council polls showed that a Two-thirds of Americans, huge shift, said, nope, partner with Japan. China's a problem. So what Abe was selling sold, but not at first. It was an uphill battle, even with the United States, even with a close ally. So he really changed the way people thought about Japan. Xi Jinping definitely helped, <laughs> big time. But he did change the way people thought about Japan, about balance of power, about the need to stand up to China. And now that's largely accepted wisdom, not only in the US, but in Australia, uh, increasingly in Korea, in India, and now in Europe. So Abe, you know, he was ahead of the curve, but in some ways he was just so steady and patient that he let the world catch up to his view of what we have to do about China, which by the way, is not just about balancing China, it's about engaging China too, which is sort of the next piece of the puzzle for us. I want to put a pin in that China-Japan question, return to that later. 
as you were talking just now, I was thinking what you just said out loud, which is um, I'm not sure Xi Jinping entirely understands how much he has shaped the strategic environment in, in unintentional ways. Final question on just Abe the person. Can you talk a bit about, as far as we know, what shaped his thinking about international politics and foreign policy, whether this is family background, key advisors, uh, intellectual currents? What, what do you understand about how he came to have this vision for the role Japan should play, but also he seemed to have a very clear vision for the way the world should be ordered and, and what role Japan can play in, in helping move the ball in that direction. Yeah. And on your point you just pinned, Xi Jinping made Abe. Um, Abe, you know, fell from, he, he resigned. He gave the cabinet about an hour of notice and resigned. It was, he was disgraced, to be honest, when he stepped down. And should never have come back politically. This was 2007. That's right. Okay. He, he had all kinds of political problems, not all of his making, but huge economic scandals and, and then health problems. And he just suddenly resigned. And that should have been the end of him politically. He came back because he studied strategy. So that's your question. But he also came back because in the interim, there was a new prime minister every year for six years. And China began bullying all its maritime neighbors, especially Japan. And the 2012 Senkaku crisis, as much as anything, created a consensus in the LDP and the ruling party, we need to bring Abe back. He's the guy who's going to help us win the election because he's the guy who can stand up to China. And this is getting into Pekingology, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that the maritime push against Japan and South China Sea was Xi, was Xi Jinping well before he took power because of his role in the CM Central Military Commission. So so she created the political conditions inside Japan and in the region for Abe's resurrection. And then she attacked Abe in Chinese social media, social mobilization campaigns, media, major, major effort to isolate Abe, as we discussed. And it didn't work. And in the end, she blinked. But that really made Abe's comeback. Abe came into politics, got elected in the early 90s at a time when, in the post-Cold War environment, the Japanese the government was beginning to work up apologies for the past, for World War II, including the so-called comfort women issue, when a Korean, but also Dutch, Australian, Philippine, Japanese, uh, Taiwanese women were conscripted into these uh, brothels to serve the Imperial Japanese Army. And he came to office resentful that Japan was being compared to Serbia, which at the time was using rape as an instrument of war. And he and many other young Turks, young conservatives, resented that the government was just rolling over and folding and letting that comparison be made. And so he had something to prove. And he came to this view because he had seen his grandfather, Kishi, basically pushed out of office by massive protests against what Kishi had done, which was to revise the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in 1960 to basically put Japan squarely on the side of the U.S. in the Cold War. There had been a security treaty signed during the U.S. occupation, but it was largely pushed on Japan. Not quite that simple, but basically Japan was under occupation when it negotiated it. This was a sovereign Japan saying, we're going to allow you to have bases for the security of the Far East and explicitly sign up for the Cold War. Massive protests in Tokyo. Kishi was basically hounded out of office. And Abe's view was that wasn't fair. Kishi, of course, had also been purged during the occupation because he'd been a prominent official in the Japanese cabinet in Manchukuo. 
in Manchuria, the puppet state. So both in terms of the post-war reckoning and the way Kishi was treated for creating a strong alliance to help win the Cold War, Abe came into office thinking, enough already. We are a democracy. We helped to win the Cold War. We're on the right side of history. That really animated him. That was his ideological side. But he had a very strategic side, too. All of his advisors have commented on this. There's Abe the ideologue and then Abe the grand strategist, the master strategist. So when he was in power the first time, the master strategist lost out to the ideologue a bit. He went out of power for six years and he studied. And he basically did what other leaders did when they were out of power who were strategic. Uh, Richard Nixon traveled around Asia, read history, met with scholars, uh, Churchill sort of a classic in the wilderness moment. And for six years, he had study groups. He read Alfred Thayer Mahan. He read Japanese diplomatic history. I I participated in some of his study groups talking about maritime strategy. And he latched on, I talk about this in the book I published this year, Line of Advantage. He latched on to this idea that Japan's proper position in world affairs is as a maritime power, like the British, like America, like Australia, like India, he believes, a maritime power. And that where Japan went wrong was trying to become a continental power, invading China. And there was a moment in Japanese history, which I talk about in my book in the 1860s and 70s, when there was the possibility Japan would become a kind of cosmopolitan maritime power, looking to Britain or America as the model. But the army, the right wing, the collapse of China, the lure for imperial space, you know, drove Japan down a dark, dark history. And and that's sort of Abe's view, that Japan probably should have been, and now again is, a maritime power, cosmopolitan. So all of his framing is around that. And the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is very Mahanian. It's very maritime, very deliberate. And by the way, exactly the phrase that is now used by Trump, Biden, the Australians, and increasingly the Europeans as well. Maybe now focusing a bit on the bilateral relationship between China and Japan. The time in office for Abe the second time around almost perfectly coincides with Xi Jinping's rise to the the top ascent of the Communist Party of China, which was the fall of 2012. What did Abe see in Xi Jinping and what was his conception of how Japan needed to respond to this increasingly truculent, assertive China. He seems to have found a balance between staking out one of the toughest strategic positions vis-a-vis China in the region, as you just mentioned, free and open Indo-Pacific, really becoming a champion of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, understanding how critical an economic strategy for the region was going to be in shaping China's choices. But I never felt like Abe went so far as being overly antagonistic of the Chinese. He found this very nice Goldilocks space between probably being the most difficult strategic opponent China had to deal with in that time period, but in a very non-Trumpian way. So can you talk a bit about how he came to that strategy and how that shaped the bilateral relationship between Japan and China, which is just just very, very complicated and, and significant? Yeah, you can't understand Japan without understanding China. And it's actually a classic mistake Japan scholars sometimes make is to go inside the box and sort of miss the fact that so much of Japan's trajectory is set by China and always has been, always. And it goes back to the earliest recorded Japanese documents, Nihon Koki and Nihon Choki and these early chronicles of what is Japan. 
from the 7th, 8th centuries. And the Japanese imperial line was an imperial line. It was an emperor. And it was deliberately meant to be an imperial line because China had an imperial line. And Japan, for some periods of history in the tributary state period, played at the tributary state game with Chinese sometimes. But basically, the Japanese self-narrative was that Japan was at least an equal to China. And you can do that if you're an island nation because the Chinese almost never had a navy. And when they did, when the, in the Yuan dynasty, when the Mongols took over, the navy got you know, destroyed by the famous kamikaze. So the divine wind. So even God is telling you, or the gods are telling you, you are meant to be equal to China. And when China's weak, like in the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, then Japan expands onto the continent. When China's strong, Japan tries to secure the maritime domain. So the give and take between Japan and China is pretty fundamental to understanding Japan, if not China. And Abe and the Japanese public was completely with him on this, or at least large percentage of the public, was tired of being pushed around by China. And Xi Jinping's whole modus operandi was pushing neighbors around. So he was almost like divinely ordained to create a leader like Abe in Japan. <laughs> and Abe intended for China to respect Japan. And he did that by strengthening alliance with the U.S., which we should talk about because that may be his biggest legacy, what he did on the Constitution. He did it by strengthening ties with Japan-Australia, pushing for the Quad, the U.S.-Australia-Japan-India summit, which was poo-pooed at one point, but is now mainstream policy for all four countries. He visited every ASEAN leader in his first um, year to prevent the Chinese from flanking him diplomatically in Southeast Asia. And held together the G7, strengthened ties with Europe. So he wanted to show the Chinese that Japan basically had more friends than they did, and very successfully so, and was a thought leader, was not just a follower, but a thought leader. He needed to shore up deterrence, and he did that, increased defense spending, reorganized the way Japan's national security structure works. But his national security advisor, uh, Yachi Shotaro, said in interviews that from the beginning, Abe's intention was to reset the Japan-China dynamic, to equalize it, to get Xi Jinping to treat Japan with respect, and then to get rich off of China. Because Japan is more dependent on China for trade than the U.S. It's not as dependent as Korea, but pretty darn dependent. The irony of Abe's years in office were that Xi Jinping made him, Chinese aggression animated his whole strategy, and then economic relations with China helped pay for it. And Abe didn't want to throw that golden egg away. And so he always intended to get a more stable relationship with China. And as you've seen, Jude, the Chinese around 2018, the whole social mobilization campaign against Japan came down a couple notches. And there was, there was a recognition Abe wasn't going away. And so in a way, he won. Now, in the long run, China's big and powerful. But, but he did succeed in getting the Chinese to treat Japan with more respect. And... Donald Trump helped. We can talk about that. <laughs> but that's what he was about. And for us in the U.S., we've sort of adopted a lot of Abe's strategy, originally American, really, things like maritime strategy or Alfred Thayer, Mahan, and very American. But we readopted it with Abe's influence. What we have not figured out, which Abe has, is how do you live next to China? I was very struck by the ruling Liberal Democratic Party's new national security strategy. It came out about six months ago. The most hawkish part of the party the National Security Commission, put out a statement. They're the ones pushing for sovereign strike capability and doubling the defense budget. But the second paragraph, I think, starts, we seek a productive relationship with China. 
when's the last time you saw that in a U.S. national security document, right? So Abe's, you know, was ahead of us, made us nervous with his hawkishness. Now, in some ways, Japan, and I'd put Australia in this camp as well, a bit ahead of us on thinking through how do you live next to China? Because they have to live next to China. How do you live with China? Doesn't mean you roll over, but what is, as you and others Zach Cooper pointed out, what does victory look like? We're competing. How does this all end? And the strategic thinking has more developed among our allies than I think it is in Washington right now, with the exception, of course, of you and CSIS. <laughs> Mike, can you fill in a bit on where the Japanese public is on the on the China issue? When you were just saying about the statement that was in the national security strategy, saying we seek a productive relationship, one of my first thoughts is, well, that would be difficult here because the domestic politics would cream anyone who posits that. Where does the Japanese public stand in thinking about the relationship with China? So pretty consistently over the last 10, 20 years, uh, in public opinion polls, 80 to 85% of the Japanese public say they do not trust China, or they think China's an adversary or a competitor or something negative. That's pretty consistent. And at the same time, Japanese companies, big companies, multinationals, make about a third of their profit now, 20 to 30, 35% in China just because the market is so huge. They're very nervous. They taper is the word a lot of CEOs in Japan use. They taper their investments these days. They don't put the best technology there. They put what they have to put in China to meet Chinese demands for investment, but not the best technology and to get access to the market, and especially car companies and consumer goods. Japan under Abe tripled its tourism industry huge boon for the economy. A lot of that was Chinese tourists. <laughs> so um, I remember in preparing my last book, I got a grant and went to a hot spring resort in Japan and had some of the best strategic thinkers, I basically my best friends, in Japan and the US in this hot spring all day, thinking through Japan's grand strategy and the rise of China. And I went out and I talked to the owner. I said, hey, how's business? It seems pretty booming. He goes, oh, business is great. He said, all these Chinese tourists. So here we were in this room <laughs> thinking great thoughts about how to compete with China when the rest of the spa was full of Chinese tourists enjoying themselves and helping pay for <laughs> you know, the success of that spa. So it's a very complicated picture. People get that in Japan. They, they understand it. Americans, we don't quite get it. People who are directly affected, soybean exporters, technology companies and stuff, they get it. But a lot of Americans don't see it. It's just not as obvious. I think for the Japanese public, they kind of know it. They get it. You know, it's just closer. It's Japan was investing in China, you know, long before we were in the in the 80s. So they get the sort of duality of this whole competition and cooperation thing. We're recording this on July 18th, and I only mention that because yesterday the uh, New York Times had a front page piece on this Chinese factory in the middle of America that was uh, a lot of opposition to it and speaks to your point just now is I don't think we've we've precisely found the status quo or at least some sort of um, sustainable equilibrium where we're uh, have economic engagement with China but steering well clear of the security risks that can often accompany interdependence and it, this strikes me as an area where learning from the experience of Japan could could uh, prove fruitful for policymakers here because other countries are dealing with this. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure, I don't want to suggest that we should just follow Japan's strategy. They got it right under Abe at a time when we had the Trump administration. The Obama administration was not sure whether it was a liberal, idealist, multilateral administration or a hard-headed realist. They were all over the map sometimes. So I'm not suggesting Japan's writing the blueprint for us. And in some ways, if you look at Japanese history, the sweet spot always for a Japanese government is to have 
better relations with China than we do and better relations with the U.S. than they do. So, you know, Japan's going to sort of naturally position itself between us and China if it can. But that said, we've not figured out some of these things. And our politics won't allow it, not in the midterms, probably not in 2024. It's going to be a quiet discussion. But since our strategy now, certainly the Biden administration and the Congress is based on allies, they're going to have a bigger say. And the allies think we got to find a way to compete with China, but not, you know, contain them. That's a a nice segue, Mike. Let me ask you now about the uh, U.S.-Japan relationship. Abe gave a speech here at CSIS in 2013. I think you were in the room, and I went back and read the transcript of it and saw that actually the the famous quote from that speech, which is, Japan is back, was in reference to a report you had helped co-author with Rich Armitage and I think a, a, a few others. First of all, I'd love to ask you about being in the room for that. And did that comment seem like this was ushering in a new era of of Japan? Often you get these throwaway lines, which don't go very far from politicians. But but looking at that now in retrospect, that did seem like a a pretty potent line. And beyond that, what did Abe do for the U.S.-Japan relationship? It seems like Japan's centrality in U.S. strategy now is is so significant compared to where it was 10 to 15 years ago. So the report that he was responding to in his speech at CSIS, and I was there, it was in our old building down in the basement, which was not the best venue, but it was a great speech. Uh, This was a report co-chaired by Rich Armitage, Deputy Secretary of State in Bush, and Joe Nye of Harvard, the Assistant Secretary of Defense in Clinton. And in 2000, Rich and Joe pulled together a group of us to do a bipartisan report for whoever won the next election and to agree that whoever did win, the Democrats and Republicans would support the other side in pushing through a stronger alliance with Japan. And so these were called the Armitage Nye Reports. If you're a Republican, Nye Armitage Reports, if you're a Democrat. And the first one was published in 2000, but the subsequent ones were all published by CSIS. So in 2012, we had put out a report and Rich and Joe wanted to put in a rather stark question for Japan. Are you going to remain a tier one country? Because new prime minister every year for six years, defense spending collapsing and so on. And that was what he was responding to. So Abe-san got up and he 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 looked at me and, and Rich in the front row and he, and he said to us, Rich, Mike, I'm here to tell you Japan is not now and will never be a tier two power. And that was a very you know, 2,000-year-old Japanese view of Japan's relationship to China and role in Asia, not a tier two power. So that was pretty fundamental. His his trip to the U.S. was critical for him because he saw the U.S.-Japan alliance as essential. His grandfather had pushed through at the cost of his political career the modern U.S.-Japan alliance. So he felt a sort of family heredity, family obligation to strengthen it. But it was different from other prime ministers. Uh, I remember Koizumi, when he was prime minister, he had a certain sentimentality about the alliance. When he first met President George W. Bush in uh, Camp David, he literally broke into a song. He said, to quote my favorite singer, Elvis Presley, and then he started literally singing, I need you, I love you. And he he had this sort of, his favorite movie was High Noon. The President Bush sent him a High Noon poster. He loved Gary Cooper. He had a different generation's view of American power and American, you know, right and wrong in the world and Gary Cooper and Elvis Presley and all that. Abe had a much more, I'd say, calculated or strategic view, not sentimentality. He certainly felt attached to his grandfather's vision of a strong alliance, but he wanted a strong alliance for Japan's interests. He realized that Japan didn't have the throw weight, the power to manage China or lead in Asia without the U.S. 
And so he needed to not only be a thought leader for the region, but he needed to really strengthen and solidify the alliance, which in his view, the Chinese were trying to break or trying to drive a wedge in, in the six, seven years before he came back to power. And the core question was related to Japan's constitution. What can Japan's military do? The so-called self-defense forces. And Article 9 of Japan's constitution, the peace clause, says Japan renounces the right of war and will not maintain, you know, military forces for that purpose. So the military, the self-defense forces, the government concluded, never went to the Supreme Court in Japan, but the government concluded these military forces are only for the defense of Japan. They cannot engage in collective defense. They can't help the U.S. or Australia or other countries if they're attacked, even though the U.N. Charter gives Japan that right. And even though it's not, strictly speaking, unconstitutional, the Japanese government in the 50s said, nope, can't go there. We can only defend ourselves. So when the U.S. got involved in Vietnam or in the Gulf War, the Japanese government could say, as much as we'd like to help you, our constitution, which you Americans wrote, by the way, we read as meaning we really just can't do anything. We can send troops for non-military missions under UN peacekeeping. We can defend bases in Japan, but we cannot engage in collective self-defense, even though the UN Charter says we can. So this was a real kind of holy grail for the conservatives like Abe. But increasingly across party lines, people realized we needed to lock the US in. The reason it was very durable as a basis for Japanese thinking was because it was a get out of jail free card. You know, don't worry about these dangerous international political security problems. And for God's sakes, don't go back to what we did in the 30s. Let's just focus on the economy. Thank you very much. So it's very, very convenient for a growing Japan, restoring itself economically, not wanting to open up domestic debates about the proper role of the military. It was very convenient. And it was a way to avoid what the Japanese call makikomare, entrapment. Sorry, we can't, can't get involved in your little wars. Well, by Abe's time, entrapment was not the problem. The problem was abandonment. Will the Americans be there for us? The Chinese are in our face. They are circumnavigating Japan. They are pressing the Senkakos. We need jointness. We need to show that we are seamless, is the word they used in Japan, seamless in this alliance. So in 2014, Abe began debating this in the Diet. And by 2015, he passed a sweeping national security reform that allowed, with certain constraints, but basically allowed collective self-defense, which means that Japan's government and Japan's military can now plan for contingencies with the U.S. for the first time outside of the direct attack on Japan. That could include anything from Korea to Taiwan to the South China Sea. It means Japan's forces, if Australians are un under attack, can come to their rescue. It has to be, quote unquote, for the national survival of Japan, whatever that is. So it's not done lightly, but the prime minister of Japan now has the right to do what, or not exactly what, but something you know other countries do. And in exchange, that now means the U.S. and Japan can plan for contingencies all over Asia together and be ready, which is what worried Abe. So we weren't ready. So big, big deal. And nobody's turning that back. Even the opposition party now accepts it. And that puts Japan in a very different place. Japanese prime ministers will be expected by the Japanese people to take risk, to step up. And you can see Kishida Fumio, the current prime minister, on Ukraine one of the first in the G7 to sanction Russia, step up. That's now what the Japanese people expect. It's what, frankly, Australia, the US, and the world expects. And that that is, the, in some ways, the biggest sort of policy legacy of Abe, I'd say, is, is, is that. So let me, Mike, if I can, and I realize I got to let you go in a minute to finish packing uh, for the big move, but just a few final questions. One is building directly off of this. So you mentioned... Taiwan contingencies. This is one where Abe had, since leaving power, been a strong, consistent voice 
in the foreign policy community, and I think cer certainly exerting some amount of external pressure on Kishida in thinking about Taiwan and in Japan having a stronger voice in declaring its interest in peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. How does Abe's absence now affect the way that Japan will be thinking about Taiwan? Was he able to lock in a consensus now? Of course, China's own belligerent actions here probably as an external motivator helping to, to push in one direction. But does his absence now provide more space domestically and in foreign policy circles for, for a debate to reemerge? So Japan's Taiwan politics are a little bit like the U.S., which is to say after normalization with the mainland, there was a group mostly on the right, but some on the sort of idealistic left in the Congress and in the Diet who were very pro-Taiwan and sort of felt bad for Taiwan and felt bad we'd, you know, sort of almost sentimentally bad that we had abandoned Taiwan to normalize with China. Abe and his family were very much part of that group. The majority was on the China side because that's where the money was. Also, Japan's normalization with China was one way to equalize the relationship with the U.S. And, and it is important to point out that Abe's changes in the constitutional interpretation are not just about China, it's about the U.S. too. It's about stepping up and being treated equally with the U.S. as well. So Abe was part of a group that was, there you go hand in hand, frankly, because if you're pro-Taiwan, you need the alliance with the U.S. to work for the defense of Taiwan, and you need the constitution of Japan to be interpreted in a way where you can step up. So it, it, they are related. But like the U.S. Congress right now, support for Taiwan and Japan is very, very broad. Again, another Xi Jinping legacy. <laughs> He's done so much for us. We really should de dedicate a whole podcast to him, Jude, I think. Uh, the grand strategies that Xi Jinping created around the world, especially in Asia, are quite an accomplishment <laughs> and not good for China. So Kishida, the current prime minister, very pro-Taiwan. And across party lines, pretty much all parties in Japan have very warm ties with Taiwan. Careful not to change Japan's one China policy. Very, very disciplined about that. But within the allowable space, lots of subterranean connectivity and ties to Taiwan. And you saw Abe on the campaign trail, actually, before he was assassinated, talking about defending Taiwan in new ways. You hear that in the U.S., you hear it in Australia. It's not just ideology. It's not just sentimentality. If China were to coerce Taiwan to take over Taiwan, it would cut the first island chain. It would completely cut off Japan's sea lanes incredibly existentially dangerous for Japan. It's not just sentimentality. So I think that the PLA now, basically, the Chinese side has to assume that in any Taiwan fight, Japan is in. I mean, just geographically, some of the Japanese islands are so close. The Navy operates so close. Uh, it's hard to imagine how China could have a surgical strike on Taiwan or surgical move to take Taiwan. They could strike Taiwan that doesn't pull Japan in and one thing we know about Xi Jinping, surgical and precise is not his MO. So I think, you know, J Japan is in. I think the PLA basically assumes that, which is why you see satellite images the Chinese side lets out of missile strikes in Inner Mongolia on target ranges that are shaped exactly like Japanese bases, Yokosuka <laughs> and Misawa. And the Chinese are making it pretty clear to the Japanese, you will be hit. So... You know, is that dangerous? Yes. But frankly, I think it complicates Chinese planning a lot. So it's good for us. Final question about Abe's long-term legacy, and maybe a way of asking that is, 15 years from now, what elements of Japanese foreign policy will you be able to directly link to Abe Shinzo? 
That's a great question. Um, again, we keep talking about Xi Jinping. He's such a variable. So the accelerator is going to be, you know, at least one part of the accelerator is going to have Xi Jinping's foot on it, how quickly Japan moves. I think in 10 years, it'd be reasonable to expect an Abe legacy that involves, number one, and this may sound surprising, but a much stronger transatlantic relationship. U.S., U.U. Abe tried really hard to keep the U.S. and Europe and Japan on the same page in the G7 with trilateral technology. I think in trade and technology, Japan is going to be the increasingly the broker between the U.S. and Europe, trying to pull together a united front dealing with China on those issues. Uh, a second area is I think you will in 10 years see very explicit and clear jointness. You know, we don't have a joint and combined command with Japan like we do with Korea. We, we have parallel commands. But I think over the next 10 years, you're going to see de facto much more joint and combined command relationships between the US and Japan. It's going to look more like Korea or NATO, even if it's only de facto and not de jure. And the third area is I think you'll see increasingly that the Japanese political leadership are focused on democracy and human rights. When I was a grad student in the 80s, you know, no one ever thought for a minute Japan cared about democracy and human rights. And it will be different from how we do it, but increasingly, and again, this is Xi Jinping, what the Japanese public and the Korean public see happening to Hong Kong, especially to Taiwan, but even Xinjiang, one of my former students at Georgetown, a Japanese citizen from Xinjiang, is uh, now a member of the Diet. <laughs> So there's sympathy and attention to Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, Hong Kong. The Japanese youth, like a lot of younger people in Singapore and, ta and Taiwan, of course, and Korea, saw themselves in what happened in Hong Kong to the protesters and the students. So I think you'll see Japan steadily standing up more and more, but it will be different. If it's a Myanmar or a country that Japan needs, they're going to be a lot softer on them than we are. But on, on China human rights and Russia, I think you'll see Japan stepping up more as well. So these are all legacies of Abe. Again, structure and agency, the mood in the public, the concern about China, the need for the alliance, all of it was there. But Abe's legacy was to consolidate it, change the interpretation of the constitution, create the quad, create the structure that now means that this is Japan's foreign policy for a generation. Mike, thank you for your insights today. Your book was tragically timed, unfortunately, but just some of the insights that you've relayed today, it just strikes me how significant and important Abe Shinzo will be, not just for this current moment, but thinking over these long-term trajectories of what the strategic environment in the Indo-Pacific will look like. But for my own parochial interests, how we design and implement an effective long-term sustainable strategy on China, one that understands the complexity of China's economic interdependence with so much of the world, but also clear-eyed sees the risks that, that China presents. No, and I, I should end very quickly, although Abe is such a fascinating world figure. Uh, on a personal level, he was a very warm and empathetic person. Wrote me personal notes when I had family, um, lost members of my family. And you can see in the reaction of people like Modi of India mm -hmm. or Tony Abbott, the deep, deep personal affection so a great loss for a lot of people on an individual basis. So I look forward to co-hosting with you, Jude. I'll be in Sydney for the next one. We'll do the Trans-Pacific thing and, and continue the Asia chessboard. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.
Asia Chessboard listeners. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or on ChinaPower.csis.org.